Well, good evening, everybody. So good to see you all this evening. The title for tonight is The Scroll of the Secret. And you may wonder why I called it The Scroll of the Secret and not The Secret of the Skull, not, not The Secret of the Scroll. Um, and I'll explain that in just a moment. The Scroll of the Secret. Let's turn to Esther chapter 2. And as you're turning to Esther 2, I'd like to explain a few concepts to you and ask you some questions. How many of you have ever kept a secret? Princess, King David, have any of you kept a secret? And is it okay to keep a secret from others? Yes, yes it is okay, isn't it? Yes. And do we ever see secrets in the Bible? Yes. The Bible is filled with secrets. We see many episodes in the Bible of secrets. And what is the role of secrets in the Bible? We're going to talk to you about secrets from a, from, a, from a biblical perspective tonight. And one of the greatest secrets that I found in the Bible is the secret that Esther kept from the king. She kept one minor detail from the king, and I'll share that in just a moment. So let's turn to Esther chapter 2, verse 9, and let's read verses 9 and 10 together. Ready? And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. And he speedily gave her her things of purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she that she should not show it. One minor detail she did not reveal to anybody, especially her husband, the king, King Ahasuerus, that she was a Jewish woman. And she did that out of, out of obedience to, to her cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai was not just her cousin. He was also, he was, I, I would actually call him her prophet as well. And he was, he, he was probably the leading rabbi, the leading Jewish rabbi in the Persian Empire. Now, it should not surprise you that this book is called Megillat Esther. Can you say Megillat Esther? Megillat Esther. And Megillat means scroll, as many of you know. So it could also read, you can call it Megillat Esther, or you can call it the scroll of Esther. Let's say the scroll of Esther. The scroll. And who is the heroine of this book? Esther. Esther. Whose name is used from the word <coughs> stir. Can you say stir? You know, you see the name Esther, and in the, in the name Esther is the word stir, which is a Hebrew root. And the word stir means secret. Can you all say stir? stir. So Megillah Esther can read the scroll of Esther, and it can also read the scroll of the secret. Or the scroll of hidden things. And that should tell you why I got that, this title, and I'm going to explain to you the secrets that are buried in this book. Because the, one, the, one of the themes in this book, and I wouldn't say it's a theme, but one of the codes that are throughout the Megillah Esther are secrets, is secrecy. There is so much secrecy in this book. And we need to understand the reason for the secrets in the scroll and what messages are being conveyed. Because this book is filled with secrets and that everyone is hiding a secret from somebody else. Haman, who's, the, who's, the, who's the, of the royal seed of the Amalekites, who's probably the most wicked person on the face of the earth, who's the equivalent of, of Hitler in the 20th century, is, has a secret agenda, who has a secret agenda to take over the empire. And also has an agenda to wipe out the Jews throughout all 127 provinces. Yeah. And Esther has a secret, 
And her secret is that she's a Jewish woman. Mordecai has a secret as well. He also kept his Jewish identity as, as a secret. And the king has a secret. In, in Esther chapter 6, when the king called in Haman, the king asked Haman, what should the king do for the one that he wants to honor? And what is Haman's response? He asked the question, who would the king want to honor more than me? And then Haman, thinking that the king wants to honor him, Haman tells the king of all the things the king should do to honor him, Haman. And once he lays out all the, all the things that, that should be done for the one the king wants to honor, you know, let him sit on the king's horse, let him wear the king's robes, let all, this, all these things be done for him. And then the king sets, him up, sets Haman up for a trap and then tells Haman, do what you said unto Mordecai. So all, there's all this secrecy going on throughout the entire school of Esther. And also within, within the book, Mordecai and Esther, who, who wrote this wonderful scroll, Mordecai has hidden things throughout the scroll. For example, he is rebuking the Jewish people throughout the scroll for not returning back to Jerusalem. Yes. So there's all this secrecy going on. And when the Persians read the scroll, well, guess what? There's another secret hidden from the Persians. The Persians think they're reading a Disney story, a Snow White story, a Cinderella story of, of a young orphan named Esther who goes from rags to riches, who goes from being an orphan to becoming the most powerful woman in the entire world. So everybody's being fooled in this book. And guess what? Many of us have been fooled for many, for many, many years. And that one of the greatest secrets, and I don't believe this is the final secret, there's one secret hidden in this book that wasn't revealed until the 20th century. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna present that this evening as well. So if you're not here physically in class, you're actually it's gonna be very difficult for you to follow along because I'm gonna show some slides here on, on that very thing. So the king is it, this one one of the secrets is Esther kept her 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 identity as a Jewish woman. She kept her lineage a secret. Esther chapter two verse ten. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. The king kept his secretive, he kept his, actually I already showed one about honoring um, Mordecai, that was a secret. So this fascinating scroll is so filled with secrets. The scroll of Esther is a comedy of errors. The scroll of Esther is a game of thrones. The scroll of Esther is a great game of chess between God and the world. And who's gonna win this game? Of course, God's gonna call the final checkmate. So let's talk about Esther's secrecy for a moment. I mean, what was the purpose of Esther's secrecy? Why didn't she re reveal that she was a Jewish woman? Why did she keep her identity a secret? Was it secrecy for self-preservation for her and Mordecai? That's a valid question, isn't it? Yeah. Did she keep the secret just to save her own life? Or is there something else hidden within her secrecy? And the answer is there's something else hidden within within the secrecy. Yeah. But before we talk about Esther and Mordecai's secret, let's go back further in time. Because you cannot understand this wonderful scroll without going back to the other books of the Bible. We need to look at all of the Tanakh. We need to look into the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You need to look into Nevoim, which are the books of prophecy, Nevi'im. And you need to look into Ketuvim, the, the writings. So let's go back to 1 Samuel, Verse, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. And I'll go ahead and read this to you. 1 Samuel 21, 
verses 10 through 15. We're going to see David's secrecy. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. So here is David before he's before he becomes king, and he is he's really he's, he's a fugitive, and he's running away from King Saul because King Saul is burning with jealousy against David, and David is fleeing for his life, and he goes to Achish, the king of Gath. So he goes into the region of the Philistines, and the servant of Achish said unto him. Is not this David the king of the land? Did they, did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Hmm. I want you to picture this. Imagine that you're like Brother Ed, and you're king of an entire kingdom. And then comes up Pastor Fowler, who's, who, who's this mighty warrior, and then the, ma the maidens come out after the war and say, look, Ed has slain his thousands, but Pastor Fowler has slain his tens of thousands. Anybody, any king would burn with jealousy. It's completely natural to burn with jealousy when you got one of your subjects receiving more honor, more praise than you. Right? So I, I'm, asking, I'm, I'm asking you to look at this from a practical perspective and, and don't look at it don't become religious as you read this, but just 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 be just be real as you read this and, and, and see what's taking place. Then in your own life, are there areas in which you have burned with jealousy because somebody else is getting the honor that you think you should receive? Or somebody else gets the promotion that you think that you deserve? Right? We, I believe we can all apply in, into our lives in, in some manner. And what took place? He, The king changed his behavior before them. And he feigned himself, and actually, when the king of Achish found this out, he changed his behavior before David. And what did David do? David knew he was about to be killed. So David feigned, or he faked being a madman. And he started drooling and started doing all these crazy things to make the king think, there's no way this man could be David, and letting him go. And David, by doing this, was acting wisely. Because he wasn't only saving his life, there was a bigger agenda. To, uh, there was something else going on behind the scenes. So even through David's secrecy, God was working behind the scenes. <coughs> and so we, 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 we see David and his secrecy. Mm -hmm. But he did this for the sake of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And even Esther and Mordecai had to keep their identities a secret. It's, it's almost like they had to go on a on a secret mission. And as they entered in to, to, to the palace, they had to keep their identities a secret because a day was going to come when God was going to unmask their secrecy and use them to save the Jewish people from extermination. Amen? Amen. And it's even my understanding that even during the Holocaust that God had put certain people in place to, to bring the Nazi regime to an end. Amen? So, so there is a place for secrets. Look at Samson. You know, going back into the book of Judges. In the, books of, the book of Shoftim. Judges chapter 16. I'm sorry, Judges 16, verses 16 through 18. It came to pass when she pressed him daily. Who's pressing him? Delilah. So here's Delilah urging him day by day so that his soul was vexed unto death. That he told her all his heart. And said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God in my mother's womb. 
If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has showed unto me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. Hmm. See, Samson was a man of many secrets. Yeah. And, and he lived in the period of the judges, and God had raised up Samson to begin to weaken the hands of the Philistines. God was using Samson to bring deliverance to the Jewish people. Yeah. And as long as he did not reveal the secret to his strength, he was safe. Safe. And the secret is not so much the hair, the secret was in his consecration to God. Mm-hmm. By performing that Nazarite vow, the result of the Nazarite vow was the, was the growing of long hair. So we don't need to read this in a, in a Disney fairy tale manner, thinking there was something magical or mystical in his hair. There was nothing magic in his hair. The secret to his strength was his consecration. And his consecration required that he drink no strong drink, and his consecration required that he don't cut his hair, because that was the that was what the Nazarite that was part of the Nazarite vow. Yeah. M- most Jews only performed a Nazarite vow for for a few days for a short period of time. But God had called Samson to live a life of a Nazarite, and I believe I think Sam the prophet Samuel, uh, Shmuel Hanavi also lived a life of, of a, a Nazarite. There, and and, and there's, I think there's probably only a few that lived a, a lifelong vow of being a Nazarite. Do you want to see another secret in the Bible? So we see Samson's secret. We see David's secrecy. We see Esther and Mordecai's secrecy. Now let's go back even further in time. Let's go back to the Torah. Let's go back to the book of Risha, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, uh, of Abram and Sarai's secrecy. Esther, uh, let's go back to Genesis 12, verse 10. And if you like, you can read it with me. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in that land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see you, that they shall say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save you alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. This is one of this is probably one of the earliest episodes of secrecy recorded in the Bible. And then Sarai maintains her alias as Abraham's sister rather than Abraham's wife. Now, many of us, many pe- people mock Abram and said he had no faith. If he really had faith, he, he, he would have told everyone that she was his, his, his wife. But I want you to imagine this. The, 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 the way the government of Egypt worked, that the king's guards that were watching the perimeter of the land, if they saw any beautiful woman that was worthy of the king's attention, they would take her to the king. And they would eventually kill the husband of, of, of that beautiful woman. So Abraham knew this. Abraham was not lying when he told them that she was his sister. She was his half-sister as well. All right. So he was not lying. He was not acting with deceit. He was, he was, act, he, and he, he was telling the truth. But he kept her identity as his wife a secret. All right. 
You're all very quiet tonight. And then in Genesis chapter 20, verses 8 through 12, same thing happens again. This time they're facing Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And here, and look what takes place. A Abraham tells his wife, he says, surely the, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So again, Abraham has his wife keep that secret. And it was for the sake of saving Abraham alive and to preserve what was coming for the Jewish people. Amen? And now we come to Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Let's flip to Esther chapter 1, and let's read this together. 1, 2, 3. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that is Ahasuerus which reigned from India unto Ethiopia, over a hundred and seven and twenty provinces. How many provinces did the king reign over? 127. 127, exactly. Now in Genesis 23.1 we read, And Sarah was a hundred and seven and twenty years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So when you, see the, when you see the same words and numbers repeated, it means we need to pay attention. The Hebrew, the Hebrew rule for this one is called a Gezra Shavah. It's a, uh, uh, or you call it a Ramez, but there's a comparison, there's a relationship. So we see 127 in Esther 1.1, we see 127 in Genesis 23.1. The book of Esther is talking about, is the introduction to Esther. And Genesis 23.1 tells us the lifespan of Sarah. And in both verses, we see 127. And this tells us there is a similarity between the story, between the story of, <coughs> Esther's, of, of, of Esther's life and the passing away of Sarah. Yes, Both Sarah and Esther were beautiful women, very beautiful women. Both Esther and Sarah were taken against their will. They were captured... Esther did not desire to become the queen of the Persian Empire. Esther had no desire to win, to win the beauty pageant. This was, this was not a voluntary beauty pageant. This was a compulsory beauty pageant. She was taken against her will. And Sarah was captured by, 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 into Pharaoh's harem against her will. And both women kept their identities secret. And they revealed their identities afterward. So it is possible that Esther modeled her behavior after Sarah for, 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 for a reason. One reason was initially was to protect Mordecai. And I encourage you all that when you read the Bible, is look at biblical figures that you can identify with. And, even, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to show you what parts of your life will, is, is, will, will has similarities to different biblical figures. It's a powerful way because the Bible is prophetic and, and the Holy Spirit will show you at different seasons in your life who your life, who your life relates to. All right? Yes. If you're going through a very difficult challenge, look, look at the situation that Jacob, uh, Jacob experienced on, on, when he worked for his father-in-law Laban. And Laban changed his wages ten times. Look at the way Jacob behaved. The Lord may be calling you that you're in a situation where you're, you're being cheated, but I want you to act wisely, I want, and I want, you to, I want you to trust me and just model your behavior after Jacob. 
Yeah. Or there may be somebody in your life for a season that is just some, for some reason is so jealous about you and is just out to get you. Well, then maybe you need to behave yourself and model your life after David and behave yourself wisely right. and allow the Holy Spirit to, that you will not sin in the midst of that and, and just, just, just grow through it and just allow God to bring you through it. Amen? Amen. But you act, yeah. you act with sacral. You, ask, you act with discernment. You act with intuition and allow God to bring you through it. Amen? Amen. And you don't fall into any of the enemy's traps. Yes, Mordecai kept a secret. Mordecai also had a secret. Esther chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew, and when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. So Haman eventually found out that Mordecai was a Jew. Oh. <laughs> but prior to that, it was a secret. Yeah. And as soon as Mordecai found out, I'm, so, I'm sorry, as soon as Haman, the wicked Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, that is when he sought to lay hands on him and to have Mordecai killed. And in fact, Mordecai went so far, I mean, he was so proactive that he built gallows to hang Mordecai upon it. So he built it first and went to ask for, for permission later. Now the most controversial secret in the Bible, I would say, would be Rebecca and Jacob's secrecy. We all know about the time that Jacob went before his father Isaac to receive the blessing. Yeah. And Genesis 27, verses 6 through 13. And Rebecca spake unto Jacob, saying, Behold, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat that I may eat, and bless you before the Lord before my death. Then, then she instructs her son Jacob, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command you. Notice she's saying, obey my voice. What she is saying is, obey the voice of prophecy. And Rebecca is acting upon the dream that God gave her when both of her sons, Esau and Jacob, were struggling in the womb. Rebecca was not acting with deceit. She was acting under the spirit of prophecy. And she was obeying the word that God had given her. Do you all agree? Amen. And, and notice what she says here. She says that she heard her father... She, she heard... I heard thy father speak unto Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me venison. So what kind of meat it was? did she hear about? Venison. About deer, right? Now, but now look on, look, read on and look at this. There's, there appears to be a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. So she says, Now therefore, my son, Jacob, obey my voice according to that which I command you. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats. So what does she tell her son Jacob to get? Goats. But what does she hear that Isaac said to, to Esau? Venison. Venison, right? See, this is not a contradiction. This is by divine design. And Rebecca did not hear because she was eavesdropping at the tent door. She heard prophetically. The Spirit of God revealed it to her. And then also acting under the spirit of prophecy, she tells her son to get two kids of goats. And doesn't that's like the... Uh, the season of Passover we're in right now. And I will make them savory meat for your father, such as he loves. Yeah. And you shall bring it to your father, that he may eat. 
and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. My, my father peradventure will feel me, and I shall seem him a deceiver. I will seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me, and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse. My son, only obey my voice, and go fetch them. The reason for this secrecy, because Rebekah kept the secret, she kept that secret of the dream private for 40 years. She never revealed it to Isaac, her husband. Rebecca being a woman of so much character that she never said anything negative about Esau to her husband Isaac. But she trusted divine providence to take care of it. But when it came time to act on the prophetic dream, she took immediate action. And then when Jacob went before her, uh, when Jacob went before Isaac, his father, he he also kept it a secret that he was not Esau. But Isaac knew that it was Jacob before him, and Jacob knew that his father Isaac knew who was before him. And and if you really analyze the text, you will see that Isaac knew, because he would say the hands are Esau's, but the voice is is Jacob's. He could not hide. He could not conceal the voice of prayer. He could not conceal one who had been in the presence of God. Because right before Isaac blessed his younger son, Jacob, Isaac, when the anointing fell upon him, he smelled the scent of the Garden of Eden. And he knew that it was Jacob that was to receive the blessing. And then when Jacob departed, Esau came into the tent. And then... Isaac became tremendously frightened because when Esau came before him, Isaac finally discerned how wicked his elder son Esau really was. And it was almost like hell. when Jacob walked in, it was it had the scent. The, the, the tent had this. The tent had the scent of the Garden of Eden. But when Esau walked in, he saw Gehenna. He saw hell open up. And he he discerned the wickedness of Esau and discerned. Esau's unredeemable qualities or, or flaws. Jesus also had a secret as well. Does that surprise you? No. Jesus kept secrets. But it was for a reason. It was for the sake of the kingdom. Yes. Jacob and Rebekah kept their secret <coughs> private for the sake of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham and Sarah kept the secret to preserve the continuation of the covenant God had given them. And here Jesus kept a secret as well. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Mark chapter 1 again, verses 40 through 45. Jesus healed a leper. And he he cleansed him. And and then in verse 43, Jesus straightly charged him and said to him, See that you don't tell, you, you, you tell no man of what I've done. But what does he do? The, lep- the cleansed leper goes out and tells everybody. Yeah. Jesus was keeping his identi- identity a-, a-, a secret from time to time. Even in Mark chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Jesus, it was not time yet for everyone to know that Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah. But the the unclean spirits knew it, and Jesus commanded them not not to not to not to say it. 
Same thing happened when Jesus healed the blind man, Matthew chapter 9. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. And then Jesus told his disciples not to reveal that he was the Christ. Matthew 16, verses 15, 16, and 20. He said to them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So we see the operation of secrecy for the sake of God's kingdom and protecting God's kingdom here on earth. The secrecy was for the sake of the Jewish people. It was not for personal gain. It it wasn't about self-preservation. And what was the reason for Jesus' secrecy? The answer is found in 1 John 3, 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, can you say this with me? For this purpose, purpose, the Son of God was manifested, manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. devil. See, the devil did not know Christ's mission. If he knew Christ's mission, he would not have had Christ crucified. He kept it a secret. And it wasn't revealed until it was too late. Until Christ's mission was complete. And that the the works of the devil were destroyed at Calvary. Amen? Amen. The the reason for Rebecca's and Jacob's secrecy was to preserve the Abrahamic covenant. The reason for Samson's secrecy is found in Judges chapter 13 verse 5. For lo, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be called a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Yeah. Are you enjoying all the secrecy so far? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason for Mordecai and Esther's secrecy? The answer to that is found in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. For if thou altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is revealing the reason for the secrecy. And the reason why the secret must be revealed, it was for the sake of saving the Jewish people. Amen. And for Esther to arise into her destiny. And now I want to take you to the ultimate secrets, the Amalekite Code. Because as you read through the book of Esther, and right from the period where Esther arises to the challenge, and she calls for a three-day fast, she's becoming more and more and more and more prophetic. And how many of you are ready to grow and excel in the gifts of prophecy that God has given each and every one of you? Here, And I'm, I'm calling this the Amalekite Code. I want, to, I want to take you through the level of prophecy that God brings Esther into. And you notice as, as you read on the scroll, initially she's called Hadassah. Then she's called Esther. And then during a moment of, of her passivity, she's just called the queen only. But eventually she grows to a place of being called Esther the queen. And that is, that is when she's walking in the fullness of her calling in God. Amen. And she's walking in such a level of Nebuah that she, is, she, she becomes the seventh and final prophetess in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
The very first prophetess is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. The seventh prophetess is, is Esther. And you're going to see the degree of prophecy he walks into. She became so prophetic that there's a, a, verse, a few verses that we're going to read where we're going to wonder what she's actually going to prophesy the very day in which ten Nazi leaders are hung after the Nuremberg trials. So what we see on the left-hand side is, 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 is the reading from the English text. We see that, what do we see here? We see the ten sons of Haman. All right, do you all see that? Yeah. On the right-hand side, you see the same text in Hebrew. Now, what you'll notice here is it's written in a very peculiar manner. It's written in two columns. In Hebrew, we read from right to left. And don't worry, if you don't know how to read Hebrew, don't, don't tune me out at this time, because you, you only need to be able to recognize characters. You don't need to understand Hebrew to understand what I want to share here. So on the right, on Hebrew, we read from right to left. So the first son of uh, uh, the first son of Haman, uh, Parsh, uh, Parsh Andata, then it says that he has the Hebrew word and. <coughs> the second son, and. Hebrew word is bet. The third son, bet. The fourth son, bet. All the way down to the tenth son. And what's very unusual here is there's no other place in the Hebrew Bible where you see the text in Hebrew written with two narrow columns. That's prophetic as well. The pictorial representation used by Mordecai and Esther in this text is done this way by prophetic design. And this has baffled the Jews for, 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 for many, many years. It looks like the two narrow columns look like what? The gallows. The very gallows upon which Haman and his sons were hung upon, I mean, yeah, hung upon, but not only the tents of the Haman, but also somebody else, because every name is is followed by a bet. That's, that's a vav, an aleph, and a tav, if you want to know, for the Hebrew letters. This is a secret code, but I'm going to break this code down in a moment. The other thing I want you to, want you to pay attention to is I marked three other letters in red that look abnormal. It's actually four letters, but I didn't put the fourth one in red. There's a, a, there's a tav here. There's a, a, a shin here. There's a zayin here. Notice that these three letters are abnormally small. It almost looks like a, a little child who's learning how to write in a, learning how to write is writing letters by the wrong sizes because they yet don't know how to write the letters properly. But Mordecai is fluent in Hebrew. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wrote these letters intentionally smaller than the others because there is a secret code embedded in this in this in these verses. And this vav here, which I didn't really draw properly, it's actually bigger than the other letters. So I just want you to keep that in your mind because we're starting with this slide and we're going to end with this slide with more detail. Okay, so let's go. Now, before we read this, one of the themes of the book of Esther is to bring down Amalek, right? It's to eradicate the memory of Amalek. Yeah. And in every generation, the Jewish people are going to face an Amalek. Now, there were three major inst instances in Hebrew in which Amalek attempted to destroy the Jewish people. Yeah. The first instance took place when the Jews left Egypt. You can see here, point one. 
As Exodus chapter 17 verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So every time the Jewish people are about to move into their destiny and move into their promised land, the land of Israel, Amalek will attack. That was the first time Amalek attacked. The second time Amalek attacked was 800 years later in Persia during Purim. Esther chapter 3 verse 9. This is Haman speaking. If it please the king, let it be, let it be written that they may be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand, gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. So that's the second time. Now, the Amalekites were a people that lived at the southern tip of Saudi Arabia. They came all the way into the Sinai Desert to, to wage war against the Jewish people. Now, we all, you all know the first two attempts, right? The first attempt when the Israelites came out of Egypt. The second attempt took place when in, the, in Persia, during Purim. The third attempt took place during World War I and World War II. Many of you know that World War II it was, I, I, in my opinion, World War II was really a, continu a continuation of World War I. Mm -hmm. There were many issues that were unresolved in World War I, and, 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 and it actually precipitated so much, it led, it, led to the, it led to World War II. Now in 1919, the Balfour Declaration stated that Great Britain would use its best efforts to achieve the objective of a Jewish homeland. The mandate was approved by the League of Nations, the League of Nations in 1919. It recognized the Jewish people's historic connection to the region and called on the ruling power in the region, Great Britain, to create a Jewish homeland. And the Jewish people began settling in British-controlled Palestine in the 1920s. Guess what happens? Every time the Jewish people start moving into destiny, a monarch will arise. Look what, then 10 years later, the Nazi party arose. And their mission was to wipe out the Jewish people. Many of us have no idea how powerful the, the Nazi party was. In fact, it was very strong even here in the United States. In the 1930s, there, there was a rally put together and, it, it, and it, um, Dr. Krause showed us this video on, on Monday night, um, and, and it, sh it actually shows actual footage of what had taken place. In the 1930s, uh, this, this rally was, was organized, and it looked so patriotic. And they had American flags, and they had a huge um, uh, picture of George Washington. But when you walked in, you looked a little closer, there were a whole bunch of men in uniform with swastikas. And and, 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 they, and they were the main speaker st started calling America to be a Gentile nation. It talked about eradicating the Jewish people. There were over 20,000 people at this rally. And it doesn't stop there. There, there was a major radio host who had over 30,000 of uh, over 30 million viewers. And he was also calling for the eradication of the Jewish people. This was taking place right here in the United States. And I spent years thinking, I don't understand how the Nazis could arise to such a place and how a whole nation 
could, could, could be so bold to come, I mean, be so wicked to call for the eradication of, of, a, of, a, of, a, to, of, a, of a people, whether it is Jewish or whatever nation they may be of, that to, to have so much hatred that you want to eradicate a, a people from the face of the earth. And I, and I always pointed the finger at Germany, not looking at what, what was taking place right here in our, in our homeland, in the, in the United States. That's how strong this spirit can be. And even today, if I can just leave the questions uh, for, for a little bit, uh, um, it—I mean, this, this is so horrifying. It is absolutely so horrifying that you can call that you can call about the genocide of of any people. And today, oh, this week, I was watching different. I just kind of caught different programs and different news things and things on the internet that there's there anti-Semitism. In yes. Europe is increasing to such a horrifying level. What's taking place in Norway within in that parade that took place? Absolutely horrifying. What took place here, locally here in Newport Beach, one of the most affluent areas of, 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 of Southern California, with, with swastikas being drawn in, in, in the restrooms. And, and what was so beautiful about what took place, a Holocaust survivor, a, late, a woman that's in her late 90s, went to that school with a rabbi. I saw this on a Jewish program last night. Uh, on one of the Jewish stations on direct TV. And she, she, she went to that school with a rabbi and talked to those kids. And she spoke to those kids with so much understanding. She spoke to those kids and told her told them what that swastika meant and, and, and told them what she had went through in, in, in Auschwitz because that's where she was transported to with the family. I believe only her mother and her survived the Holocaust of her family. And those kids completely turned around because they did not understand the ideology of Amalek. Here we have Newport Beach, one of the most affluent, and I'm not just pointing out Newport Beach, Newport Beach just made it, to, made it to the news. But if it's in Newport Beach, it's probably all over America. So we're seeing the rise of anti-Semitism again. And I'm telling you, we've got, we've, got, we've got to fight this spirit in this generation like never before. Because we do not want to repeat what took place under the regime of, of, of the Nazi party. We never want to see this again. This is taking place in churches. This is taking place in religious places. And it, it, I don't care what religion you are, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, Christian, whatever you may be, we cannot tolerate anti-Semitism. That's right. And we cannot tolerate eradicating any people because they don't believe the way we believe. That's right. That's right. Amen. Especially when we live in a, a nation. I mean, I treasure the freedoms that we have in America. Amen. Yeah. I really right. do. That's right. Where else can you go out? I, mean, I don't encourage anyone to do this, but you, you, you can go out and protest anything in the streets, but our Constitution protects us. Yeah. If you go into other countries, you can probably be killed yes. for, for, for having That's radical right. views. Yes. So I encourage you all to treasure your freedoms and to protect the freedoms of each other. Amen. So this is what took place in, in, in World War One and World War Two. Let's go to the next slide here. This is actually one of my favorite slides right here. Haman's ten sons and remember the Hebrew in the very first slide I said I used the word bet. That's the Hebrew word for this particular hand. And so let's read this together. Genesis, actually Esther chapter 9, verse 10. Dr. Vic, I didn't see you until a few moments ago. Okay, Esther chapter 9, verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who slew them, but brought the spoils, laid they not their hand. And verse 12. And the king 
king said unto Esther the queen, that the Jews have slain and destroyed five hundred men to Shushan the palace, and the ten sons of Hanun. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee, or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree, and let Hamlet's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. Thank you. Now these are the, this is Esther chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. So we see the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. So are they dead? Yeah. I'm asking all the questions. Uh -huh. Are they dead? Yeah. How dead are they? Yeah. Very dead. Partially dead? 10%? Yeah. Very dead. Completely dead. Right? So we all agree. And they, but the, on the spoil laid they not their hand. That was a tikkun or a reparation for Saul's disobedience. Mm -hmm. Esther's ancestor, King Saul, took the spoil. He kept the best. Yeah. He, that was in complete disobedience to God. Yeah. Esther <coughs> repaired that damage and restored royalty to her to her bloodline and restored the name of King Saul by not touching the spoil. Mm. See, there's nothing in Scripture that is without relevance. Everything has meaning. Now, verse 12. The king said to Esther the queen. Notice her new title, Esther the queen. The Jews have slain and destroyed the 500 men of Shushan, the palace, and the 10 sons of Haman. So we all agree that Haman and his 10 sons are completely dead. Yes. And then she asked her question, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request further? And it shall be done. Then verse 13, Esther said, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow. Can you say to do tomorrow? To do tomorrow. According to this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. There's a reason why I asked you how dead they were, because she's asking again for the hanging of ten sons of Haman. It, it doesn't make sense. Why would you hang ten men that have already been hung? And these, this verse has baffled the Jewish sages for over a thousand years. Actually, over a couple thousand years. It doesn't make sense. Why would you ask for the hanging of some of a people, of 11 people, Haman and his sons, that are dead already? And she's asking for the hanging of Haman's 10 sons. This has been a, a mystery, and the mystery was not unveiled. This secret was not revealed. Until, until very recently. So the answer, we have to go back to the Hebrew. Going back to the very same verses. We're going back to Esther chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. So we start with this picture. Can you all see that? We see two narrow columns. Very narrow, right? Alright, so I, I drew a little, uh, what do you call this? I just drew this here on the left-hand side because you see the same word repeated ten times. Mm -hmm. You can actually go ahead and count if you like. Here what we see is the Hebrew word bet. It means and, but it's not like saying 
uh, Cheryl and Ed, or Terry and Marilyn, or Aida and Carol, or Mama Lupe and, um, and Dr. Vicky. It's not like that kind of and. This is more like an and what. I call it a prophetic end. It's this and something else in the future. This and something else in the future. So after every son of Haman, we get a bet. And what? The second son, and what? It's a prophetic end. Now let's go to the next. I'm going to actually add to the slide here. Now, there are four letters that are abnormally sized. Do you see that? And I've highlighted four of those letters in blue. They're either smaller and, 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 and higher up, or they're, they're larger than the other letters. Like that bob on the bottom right shouldn't be that large with respect to the other letters in the line. Now, just to give you a little perspective, there are, now, Dr. Corral said there are 700,000 letters in the, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures. I'm just going to go by the stats that I have based upon the, the material, the information I'm receiving from another rabbi. This rabbi said there are 150,000 letters in the prophets, the book of Nevi'im. There are 100,000 letters in the writings, which are ketubim. There are 600,000 letters in the Jewish, scripture, Jewish scriptures. Of the 600,000 letters, only 23 letters are written small or, or larger. The, or the, the Only 23 letters in the entire Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. Out of all the letters, only 23 are abnormally sized. And four of those abnormally sized letters are found right here in Esther chapter 9. And the four letters are Shin, which is at the top, Zayin, which is towards the bottom, and at the very bottom we have the uh, we have the Zayin and we have the Vav. And Esther, let's let's um, let's come back to the slide here. The next one. Yeah. So we and I, I give you what the, the representation of each of these letters. We have the the Tav, and in Hebrew every letter has a numerical value. So the Tav here has a numerical value of 400. Can you say Tav is equal to 400? Tav is equal to 400. Then we have a Shin, and we say a Shin is equal to 300. Then we have a Zayin, which is equal to 7. And we have the Vav, which is equal to 6. I hope you're all still, I hope you're all still awake. We're almost done here. The Vav is the only letter that's larger than the other three letters. The Vav represents the, the, the sixth millennium. In Hebrew, the year 5,000. So the first millennium begins with a zero, the second millennium with a 1,000, and then all the way up to the sixth millennium is, is 5,000. And we we're still living in the fifth, uh, we're still living in the sixth millennium. What year is it right now in the Hebrew calendar? Five seven seven nine. Is that right? Five seven seven nine. So what? We, so we have the year five thousand on the Hebrew calendar, and then you take the tav, the shin, and the zayin. Five hundred. Uh, four hundred plus three hundred plus seven. You get five five hundred. You get seven hundred seven. Correct. Mm -hmm. So if you add five thousand and seven oh seven, what do you get? Five seven zero seven, the Jewish year five seven zero seven. Well, on our Gregorian calendar, what year is five seven zero seven? Five seven zero seven. 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 Five seven zero se
5707 on our calendar. 1946. Exactly, the 1946, as it shows here. Now, one thing I want to show you here is this is the very year in which 11 Nazi criminals were tried in crimes against humanity. They were all convicted and they were sentenced to be hung on the gallows. They were, they were all sentenced to die by hanging in the year 1946. And that's exactly when this prophecy was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in the year 5707. This is complete, this is totally prophetic, completely the handiwork of God. The greatest secret that's embedded in the book of Esther is that is this fulfillment of prophecy with the hanging of ten Nazi leaders in the Nuremberg trials. It prophecy was fulfilled to, to a T. Now back to Esther chapter 9, verse 13. I want you to pay attention to this verse with even greater scrutiny. Esther said, if it pleased the king, she's not making this second request to her husband. She did that in the previous verse. Now she's, when, often when you read the king, in Hebrew it's Hamalet. And she's not making the request to King Ahasuerus, or in Hebrew Ahasuerus. Mm -hmm. She's making the request to Hamalet, the king of heaven. And then she's asking that it be done tomorrow. Tomorrow is not the next day. Tomorrow is sometime in, in the distant future. And she's asking, she's asking the king of heaven that let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. Esther had such a revelation. She had, I believe she had a revelation of World War II and the events that took place in the Nuremberg trials. And she's praying for justice for what had taken place. Yeah. We're almost done here. I'm going to ask you all a question. Was this a coincidence? No. no. In 1946, 11 Nazi war criminals were tried for crimes against humanity in the Nuremberg trials. They were convicted and they were sentenced to be hung in June. But the sentencing was delayed until October 16th. I want to explain that to you. They were scheduled to be hung in June. If they would have been scheduled in June and have been hung in June, Esther's prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Because in June, it was the year 5706. Wow. It would invalidate this prophecy. Wow. But because of the, the deliberation, the deliberation that was going on, and the people were saying that it's, it's, it's inhumane to, to kill, to execute the capital punishment through hanging, they, they, they continued on a little bit longer. So they were not hung until after Rosh Hashanah in the year 5707. Wow. See, we, we see God's handiwork throughout these trials. So one day, so that so that sentencing was delayed until October 16th. I'm going to explain to you what October, the relevance of October 16th in just a moment, because this, this is not a, it's all by divine design. One day before the sentencing, one of the leaders committed suicide. Now, 11, see, 11 Nazi war criminals were tried for crimes against humanity. If there were 11 that were hung, 
it would invalidate Esther's prophecy. One day before the sentencing, one of the 11 Nazi criminals committed suicide with, with Simon. Now, Haman, according to a Midrash, had 11 kids, 10 sons and one daughter. The daughter committed suicide. Now, coming back to the Nuremberg trials, the, the, the day before the hanging, the one man that killed himself with cyanide, he wore a dress underneath his uniform. He was a family of We see 11 and 11. We see, this, we see two, two suicides. So we, we see here, one day before the sentencing, one of the leaders committed suicide, right? And we see Haman's daughter committed suicide as well. Now, the hanging should have taken place in June, but it was delayed until October 16th. October 16th, 1946, that day on the Hebrew calendar is the 21st day of Tishri. 21 days after Rosh Hashanah. Why is the 21st of Tishri relevant or significant? It is Hoshana Rabbah. It's the final day of the Feast of Sukkot. And it's the day in which God executes judgment upon the nations of the world. The very day that God executes judgment upon the nations of the world is the very same day in which these 10 Nazi criminals were hung. In exact fulfillment of Esther's request. If the hanging had occurred in June, Esther's prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Are you blown away by this? Yes. I hope you all are. So you know, the first day of the Hebrew New Year is Rosh Hashanah. So imagine this in back in 1946, coming into October. The first day, of the year incremented from 5706 to 5707. So on Rosh Hashanah is the day of remembrance, it's the day of judgment, it's the day in which all of creation passes before God in a judgment, right? It's judgment day. And you see that in Revelations chapter, in Revelations 1 through 3 as well. Then God gives us 10 days of repentance. And the 10th day is known as Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That, on that day, our destinies are sealed in, in, in the book of life. Yeah. And then you come to the 15th day of the month, we enter the Feast of Sukkot. Sukkot is a seven-day feast. It's, um, we call it the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, the more accurate name is Sukkot. It's a seven-day feast from Tishri 15 through Tishri 21. Tishri 21 is the final day of the Feast of Sukkot. And it's the day in which the verdict is delivered. So the verdict is sealed on the 10th day of Tishri, but it's not delivered until the 21st day. And God executed judgment upon the world upon the 21st day of Tishri. In exact fulfillment of Esther's request. Wow. Amazing. See, when you study the Hebrew feast, don't look at it like, oh, I'm just going through the feast again. The feasts are God's calendar upon the earth. The feasts are so relevant. If you haven't read my second book, Earth, Wind, Fire, and the Still Small Boys, I really encourage you to get that book because I, I break down the feast in, 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 in so much detail. And I want you. To, I'm going to ask you the question again. Was this a coincidence? No. no. I'm going to give. I'm going to give you some blur, uh, some some excerpts here. 
Herman Goring committed suicide just like the daughter of Haman. That was the, that was the transvestite. Mm -hmm. Second bullet, exactly 10 Nazis were executed on October of 1946, just like the 10 sons of Haman. The execution was performed by hanging, just like Esther, Esther's request of the king. Exactly every I is dotted, every T is crossed. The exact year, 5707, 1946, as it's written in Esther, would be four abnormally sized letters. Yeah. There are just too many matching events to call this a coincidence. If you're not blown away yet, if you're gonna be. What's even more striking is that Julius Stretcher, right before being hanged, yelled out Perim Fest 1946. Wow. Perim Fest 1946. Yeah. I don't even know if you even read the Book of Esther. But he saw it was just like he was prophesying, this is Kareem Fest, 1946. <coughs> this is the fulfillment of Esther's prophecy. And this is taken right out of the Newsweek magazine in October of 1946. Their deaths fulfilled the Kareem prophecy of the 1946 date coded in Esther. Wow. And here's a, here's a screenshot of the Newsweek magazine of that month. And it describes Herman, who committed suicide. He um, he was lying on a small iron cot in cell number five, wearing black silk pajamas and a blue shirt, crushed between his teeth a glass vial of potassium cyanide. Gaps twitched and done. If you want these slides, just shoot me an email. And I'll but it's just it's just mind blowing to see what had taken place. There's no way that this was a coincidence. This was divine providence at work and God executing judgment upon the nations of the earth. And it's my prayer that another Holocaust will never take place in this world. But the signs right now are extremely negative. Yeah. And it looks like it's repeating again. My prayer is, and I pray that we all, as we all come to a fast over the next few days, yes. after the banquet, the yes. Sunday, that we fast for, for the ending. That we're fasting for a few things. One is for the reversal of Roe versus A, a wave. Mm -hmm. We're fasting for the ending of Planned Parenthood. We're fasting. I pray that we also fast that the Holocaust will never happen again. Amen. 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 I just pray because we, we must Amen. never forget what Amalek did. If we forget, then we're going to repeat another Holocaust. We, we must not forget what Amalek did to the Jewish people. And we see history repeating itself. I do not want to give this presentation again and give you point number four. Mm -hmm. 